Welcome. You're listening to RUF at the University of Oklahoma. We're going to be looking at Luke 18, 9 through 14 today as our jumping off point. That is um, our 11th story of the semester. We're going through the stories that Jesus told. We call them small stories, big ideas. Jesus is trying to teach us things about God and things about ourselves because He desperately loves us and cares about us and wants us to know truth. He, he, he does that. And so whether or not you're convinced tonight or unconvinced about the gospel and Jesus and Christianity, uh, this is a great place to be in. This is one of the best places you could be because we're going to dive right into one of the most famous stories that Jesus told tonight. And it really does talk about significant issues. Namely, how does one connect with God? What makes one justified with God or approved by God? Who are the people that God likes? Okay, that's a great question. Does God like me? Uh, that's a great question. So check this out. We're going to read 9 through 14 of Luke 18. We'll pray and then we'll dive right in. So hear the word of God. It's on the, it's right behind you. I'm trying to move this side. But he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That's Jesus. This is Luke speaking. He says this, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, says Jesus, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted." grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask him to write these eternal truths in our hearts tonight. Let's pray. Uh, dear God, um, we see these prayers. We see this story. We see the temple. Um, Lord, I pray that you would enable us to imagine them. Imagine Jesus standing there before people. Uh, and as we hear the story and as we hear it explained, uh, I pray that if anything that is said that is not in accord with what, what you intended here, that it would be struck from our memories. But, but Lord, if anything that is said tonight, uh, hopefully a lot of it, uh, is uh, your word, would you write it on our hearts? Would you give us your spirit to, to comprehend it, to understand it, to see it, and to imagine it? Imagine ourselves and, and imagine ourselves uh, meeting you and, and, and getting to know you. And, and following you, and, and, and doing wonderful things with you and, through you, and through your work in us. Would you do these things, and we will give you glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So, the tax collector and the Pharisee, this is a story of justification. Now, I want to ask you, have you ever been watching a football game, and one team is maybe just blowing them out? Like, you know, typical OU football game, Right? Versus Kansas or something like that, and you know, like there's a and there's a, a you know player on the other team 
you know, scores a touchdown, and he starts celebrating, and you're like, bro, it's 42 to 6. What are you doing celebrating a touchdown when your team's losing 42 to 6, right? You get that, right? So maybe you're, maybe you're watching a Thunder game, and they're playing the Lakers from last year, and Swaggy P, you know, hits a dunk, you know, jams one, and totally freaks out like he's, like he's won the, uh, the finals or something. And Kevin Durant hollers in from the sideline like, yo, scoreboard. Okay, like, what are you doing, Swaggy P? We all sort of have that scoreboard mentality. We justify ourselves based on what our scoreboards say. You know, how much money we have in the bank, how much capital we have with our friends, how many people, how many likes we have on Instagram or Snapchat followers or up Facebook upvotes. Yes. Okay. Whatever that is. Um, think about class. You know, you get to Dale, you know, 15 minutes early, you know, for your class, if you're that person, you're lined up outside the lecture hall waiting for, the, for your physics class because the other class is still in there. And as soon as the other class departs, you're up there on the front row um, and then your professor's not even there yet, and the professor comes in, starts teaching, and then you look and see that idiot guy who always comes in late, stumbling 20 minutes late for his 11 o'clock class, and you're like, what in the world? Okay, like, oversleeping again for an 11 o'clock class, and you're judging the crud out of that guy. Judging the crud out of him. So, well, well, maybe you are that idiot guy stumbling in, okay? Some of us are that guy. I was him, stumbling into class late. And you know what? I see you judging me. Um, we see it, okay? They see you. They know what you're doing. Uh, we, we may be late, but we're not stupid, okay? We may be slackers, but we, we are very much aware that people judge us for that. But here's the plot twist. Um, we're all judging everybody, you know? The, the uptight people are judging these slackers, uh, we all imagine that, that we'll do well, you know, uh, on, on the thing, but the slackers are judging you for being too uptight, okay? Too much of a suck-up on the front row. My assertion is that life is an endless cycle of self-justification. Wherever you find yourself on the continuum of the spectrum in life, you're judging other people for not having the same abilities you have, okay? The same things that you're good at, they have a deficiency in them, and you sort of prop yourself up and say, I'm good because... I'm better than them. And they're looking at you and saying, well, you're not as good as me at this. Since kindergarten until right now in this room, you're either validated or rejected by people and institutions. And basically, rejection stinks. And so we want to find a way to say that we're okay. And so we'll look at what we're good at and figure it out. We're all looking for approval. We've got to have, I think, patience okay, with people and not belittle others who are not up to our standards. Uh, exhibit A here um, for, for my assertion. My assertion, again, is, remember, life is an endless cycle of self-justification. Well, you look at your Snapchat stories. Is that right? You have a story now on Snapchat that's added to the app. And, and you constantly see more fun things that you're not a part of, right? More fun things that you haven't been invited to. And you feel sad. A little emoji tear coming down. Like, you're just sad because... You, don't, you didn't get invited to that. And so because, you know, like note that you've, you've opened up an app on your phone and it made you feel insignificant. You know, and we all feel that. We all feel that truth. We open up an app and, and we find ourselves feeling insignificant. We can't enjoy the, the moments of life anymore because we've got to Instagram the, Instagram the crud out of it 
so everyone can know we're having a fun time. We've got to frame it just right so we can be justified. And I, when I say justified, I mean approved of. Justification means approval. And so we feel pride or self-righteous when we feel approved, like the man in this story, the first man, and we might feel self-hatred or shame when we feel disapproved of, right? And so maybe we feel um, self, uh, this is a self-loathing, and so we feel like we don't justify ourselves. Maybe that's where that's coming from. And so we guard our image. Uh, we fear that we're going to lose our justification. And behind every selfie is the quest for justification. We post pics of us or our usies even, you know, to, to really show that we have friends. Okay, it's not just us in order to get approved, okay? I just saw an app, a new app online uh, that was, um, it actually optimizes your selfie for Instagram or Snapchat. Like, so, it, so you just hold it out and it like, it takes it the right, right timing so that you're looking your best. It's pure gold. I mean, like, that's awesome. Find that app and download it. It's great. Uh, you know, that, that, when you know what that's called, it's called pride. <laughs> that's what that's called. Um, here's, that's, that's, that's the rub. You know, pride has all these unintended consequences, doesn't it? One, it annoys everybody. Two, it alienates everybody else. Three, it just reveals our insecurities. Four, it shows that we're all in a funk spiritually. Uh, and the parable before us, parable before us, a story that is, is calling out people who justify themselves or approve of themselves by anything other than God's opinion of them. Okay? God says you simply can't do that. Um, so if you look at verse 9, it says, to those who trusted, it means depend on, trust in, or put one's confidence in. And so that's very similar to pistis, which is the faith word. And it's like the idea of resting in something or trusting in something. So like he's saying, essentially, he's talking to people who put faith in themselves. Their confidence is in themselves. Okay, faith in self. That's the real enemy Jesus is trying to slay here. He's trying to destroy that enemy of self-pride or self-faith. He wants to kill self-justification. And he wants to establish humility, confidence in God's mercy, not confidence in our own accomplishments. So our relationship with God is not on anybody's merit at all. No one, what anyone's done or hasn't done, um, it's based on God's mercy. And that's a game changer. It's just, so if, that, I mean, if, 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 it's, if it's based on mercy and not works, and that means I don't earn it by my good works, I don't earn God's approval by my deficit of good works or His displeasure by my deficit either. My status is entirely apart from works. And so if that's the case, then there's no way anybody should be exalting themselves. Never. Um, and so to prove that Jesus, to prove that Jesus is going to bring us to this story, and so I want to just start off with three intro things about this story. First, look at the setting. It's set in the, at the temple. They go to the temple, and that is the holiest place in Jerusalem, the temple. You literally have to go up to it. It's up, it's up high. It's on the hills. And so God's special presence was said to be located there. So it's a journey for, for any normal person to get there. Just to get up into the presence of God or the, the localized special presence of God, which is supposed to be in the temple, you have to go there. And then the temple even had separations. It had curtains and, and, and compartments. And there's an extra super holy place where extra super holy people could go. And, and the regular people couldn't go in there. 
And so, so, so you, and even, even then, only the most super holy set apart people could go in there once a year. Okay, and it's like this super authorized personnel only sign on steroids. Okay, you couldn't go in. If you did, you might get struck by lightning or burned or something. Uh, it's serious. I mean, like people could, could die by going in. Okay, so, so that's the first thing. It's a super holy place that they went to. And next, notice the two characters. Okay, the two characters, they're praying simultaneously. Okay, so, so Jesus introduces the first one, the Pharisee, and he introduces the tax collector. But they're, they're really, if you were to see the story like directed and played out on a screen in front of you, there'd be two men praying. Okay, uh, the first one, the Pharisee, second one, the tax collector, far off, and there's the temple. Okay, so if you're hearing the story with no context and simply viewing the people in the scene, you're going to assume, first of all, that God would like the first man and not the second man. Why the first man's closer? Okay, the first man's a Pharisee. The and a Pharisee, I'm not assuming y'all know what this is, but, it, but uh, one of those people was a man who belonged to the most pious movement in the time. They were known for surpassing others in observing piety and, 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 you know, and the exact interpretation of laws. They were really serious about this stuff. Okay, they were like the youth group of the year, or youth group kid of the year. They were just dominating youth group. They did the Bible drill. Some of you are here that are those people. Y'all would be the Pharisees. Um, that's right. Tax collector, though, was the most hated profession out there. Okay, you couldn't even appear to come close to the temple because people would scoff at you and call you names. The second man, tax collector, he actually calls himself in the Greek, the sinner. Okay, there's a definite article there. The sinner, and that's probably because people are always calling him, look, the sinner. Okay, like that, I'm like, he's like, God be merciful to me, the sinner. They're taunting him. So again, the Pharisee, known for surpassing everybody, the tax collector, the most hated profession out there. Um, Pharisees are very dutifully keeping all the laws. The tax collector couldn't even come close, though. Um, tax collector is really what they, like there was this litany of taxes they collected. You got temple taxes, Toll taxes, you got taxes for just going down the road. It sounds like Dallas, you know, kind of like that. You know, so um, you got you got to have your toll tag, um, or you get a bill in the mail. So um, tax collectors w- would would bid on regions to collect taxes for a specific place, and then collect their taxes, and they'd have this margin over that where they they'd go over that, and the, anything they collected over that amount was sheer profit. And so they, a lot of them got rich by jacking the prices of their taxes. There's no regulation and the, the, the kicker here is they were considered traitors by their people because they contracted with the Romans to cheat their own people, okay? And so they're known as dishonest. Later in history, later in history, this is fascinating, they weren't allowed to be witnesses in court because they were just, as a culture, they were known to be that bad of liars, okay? There were laws on the books where a tax collector could not testify at your trial because his word was no good, okay? They're terrible. It's amazing. Okay. Jews listening here would obviously assume that the Pharisee was the righteous guy. Jesus would like him. Some of you have heard this story in church, and you know, you've heard Luke's framing of it, you've heard it before, and you know it doesn't end well for the Pharisee. The Pharisee is actually Snapchatting his going above and beyond. He's saying, look, I fast twice a week. Okay, in the Jewish culture, in the Old Testament, you were only required to fast once a week or once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. But if you're really super holy and want to show you can go the extra mile, 
you can fast on Monday and Thursday. And that's what he did. He did the most, the most you could do. Okay? He, would ta- he would fast um, w- twice a week rather than once a year. And he's also you know, selfing himself as he's tithing everything. He's like, look at this meal I'm having. I'm tithing the meal I'm having. Like literally, if you grew it, you had to tithe it. But if you're consuming, you didn't have to tithe it. So he's like, he, everything that they grow, they're tithing. And they're, anything, everything they're taking in and consuming, they're tithing extra. They're tithing what everyone else's tithes. They're tithe crazy. They're giving all the time. So this guy is going above and beyond, and he feels that great burden to do that, and he really loves people to see it, okay? And, you hate, and some of you hate those people. Some of you are those people. You're like, look at me, I'm super holy. Um, and so that's, that's the two people in front of us. And you would think that Jesus and God like the first guy and don't like the second guy. Okay, the third thing here. One clearly was inferior and an outsider. He wouldn't even look up here. He wouldn't even look up to the temple. He had his head down, okay? He wouldn't even get close to it. The other, ones, the other one used five personal pronouns. I, me, my, everything about me, 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 monster, ah, me, me, me. Okay, the other one's like, God be merciful to me, okay? So they're, they're, they're talking about themselves, but in different ways, okay? Jesus calls the righteous man unrighteous and he calls the unrighteous man who everyone listening would have assumed is unrighteous approved or righteous that's a plot twist isn't it can you believe jesus looks at these people and sees what no one else sees it's stunning this guy the first guy had gone well beyond what all the law required he's running up the score on the tax collector if it were a contest okay if it were a competition, but when Jesus says, let's break down the film, okay, the first guy doesn't stand up. You know, he looks, his, he looks at his heart. Where's his heart? What's he trusting in? Well, again, like I said, he's, he used the first person pronoun five times in two verses. He's using the active voice. He's saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. Okay, nowhere does he confess any faults or sin at all. Nowhere. Um, and thirdly, outwardly he's talking to God, but as he's praying, right, he's saying, you know, God, thank you that I'm not like this tax collector, okay? Thank you that I'm not like the, the cheaters and the liars and the adulterers. He's really saying, thank you, God, I'm such a great guy, okay? That's what he's saying. He really, I would say, that I, you could argue that he really felt no divine presence at all. Now, if you look at Isaiah 6 for one, one, one text, if you want to go above and beyond and go read your Bible later and look at Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 5, if you're a note-taking person, look that up. What, did, what happened to Isaiah when he, when he felt the presence of God? He fell on his face and said, Woe to me, a man of unclean lips. Go read that story. It's amazing. Luke 5, 8. When, when, Jesus, when, when people see Jesus as God, they, they, they're undone. They fall on their face. But no, this guy sees no, no, no presence of God at all. He starts comparing himself to others. God, I'm not a robber or a cheater or an adulterer. And the, 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 fair, uh, the Pharisee who's just berating this tax collector says, look, I'm glad I'm not, not like him, but Jesus is saying, look, that guy's on the way to heaven, and you're not, basically. Jesus takes self-righteousness very seriously. And this is a typical, typical, culturally, this guy would just be off the charts, good, but he's saying that's not what matters. It's God's mercy that matters. Okay, culturally, everyone's going to assume, like I said, the first man would have the open line to heaven. 
But this man, yet this man says, yet we have a, we have a blind spot to pride here when we look at him. He's proud. Um, Jesus exposes that. He says it's more than just your, your duties, your work, or your externals. It's what do you actually trust in? Do you trust in yourself or do you trust in God to save you? And so, so obviously this man's not trusting in God but only himself, the first man that is. The second man, we all we know that he says is God be merciful to me, a sinner, as he's pounding his chest. Okay, We know he's, 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 he's come to the end of himself and saying, God's got to save me because I've got nothing. Okay, nothing. So we see here the tax collector comparing himself to others is fruitless. God's not impressed. So when you've got all your volunteerism, you've got all your mercy, you've got all your reading your Bible and going to church while your roommate's sleeping in, okay, that is not the thing that, that makes you justified. That's not the thing that makes you approved. It's God's mercy evermore. Okay, God's mercy alone can help. One is justified or one is not. Not by your position, close, who's closer to the temple, but it's the position of your heart. Uh, one's going to heaven, one thinks he is. Okay? The principle in the end is that God honors humility. You've got to be humble to be saved. Now, is he saying here that, okay, be humble and be saved? No, it's saying those who, who are believers in God can't help but be humble. Okay, it's not saying that humility is the work you must do to be saved. It's saying that that's evidence that you truly do believe in God and aren't just you know, tooting your own horn here when you're praying. Okay, uh, you've got it, you sort of got it to, to even to get it, you've kind of kind of got to say, look, I'm the bad guy. Okay, I'm the bad guy. Uh, I, was, I was a bad guy, and Jesus had to be born, live a life in my place, die on a cross, suffer the wrath of God and be resurrected so I could be alive. I'm that bad of a guy. Can you say that? Without that, I've got nothing. Can you say that? You've got to, you've got to believe that. And I think Jesus wants you to actually be like the tax collector. That is your representation. Now, we don't know what the tax collector had done. We don't know. He could have been giving a lot of his money away. He could have been doing all kinds of fasting. The text just simply doesn't tell us because, look, Works are not what matters, okay? We look at externals. We look at what the job is. We look at what they've done. But we, don't, we, we, don't, we simply don't know what he's doing, okay? Because that's not what matters. But think about this. This tax letter, if you know, if you know your New Testament, if you know your Luke gospel, uh, the next chapter is Luke 19. And, and what's that story? What's in that story? Do we have the, the slide there? Boom. Oh, it's right there. Oh, perfect. Look at that. Jesus and Zacchaeus. Okay, Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He's a short man, too. He's a wee little man. Okay, and a wee little man with teeth. Um, it says, he entered Jericho and was passing through. That's Jesus. This is right after this story. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead, climbed up in a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the, uh, Lord half, the half of my goods I give to the poor. 
If I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Isn't that remarkable? Okay, The least likely person to be eating with Jesus, Jesus invites to stay with him, the one who wants to climb a tree to see Jesus, he's going to Jesus because he has no one, ho- no one else, no one else to, to care about him. No one else likes him. He's a tax collector. He's Zacchaeus. He's rich. He's a bad guy. Okay, there's grace for that bad guy. There's grace for bad people. Uh, people who have sinned enormously. People like me. People like you. Jesus is for those people. He says, come and eat with me. And if they will, he's like, he's like knocking at the door, and those who open the door and let him come in, he will eat with them. Okay, this is, this is the promise from Revelation 3. Jesus is saying, I'm here to save bad people, humble people who desire mercy. So there's good news for bad people. But there's also Pharisees who receive mercy. Um, do you know Paul? Have you ever heard of Paul in the Bible? If you, I mean, a lot of people dog on Paul, you know, because like, he's not Jesus, okay? But that's okay. Uh, Jesus called Paul to be an apostle um, much later than the other apostles that he, that he was walking with here in the, in the Gospels. And so in the book of Acts, Paul is a guy named Saul, and then he gets his new name after he is blinded by a light, okay? And then uh, Jesus speaks to him from heaven and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because uh, what Saul is doing is he's going killing Christians. And so Jesus takes him, blinds him, and then, and then restores his sight and teaches him about who he is. And, and then he eventually becomes a church planter. And he, and he, and he sails around the world starting new churches. And, and, and so this man, Saul or Paul, had a lot of, he had a lot to boast about as well. He could look, easily say, look, I'm glad I'm not like Zacchaeus. I'm glad I'm not like a, a tax collector. Uh, in fact, the next slide we have, which is Philippians 3, is his, his kind of summary of, of, of who he is what, is, what is, what the basis of his life is. Listen to this. It says, Put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. We'll just stop there. He's listed his resume, okay? A Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee is the law. Uh, a zeal, I've got it. I've got righteousness under the law. I'm blameless. But he says, for his sake, in verse 8, I count it as a loss. Everything is a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. To be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith in verse 9. Salvation by grace means I lose everything. All that I've done does not count. Okay? All of my resume building does not count. It's empty. Nothing I've done counts that I might gain Christ. What, the way we gain Christ is his righteousness and not ours. We all, good and bad, tax collector, Pharisee, 
we ought to lose everything that we want to boast in and say, I need Jesus. I need mercy. I need him to accept me based on him and not me. Okay, and so the next slide, one more. This is not that one. Keep going. 1 Timothy 1. Um, this is Paul again saying this. This is towards the end of his life. He says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So we know what foremost means? The worst. I'm the top dog. I'm the biggest, baddest sinner you know. I am the one, the foremost sinner. Until you can say, I'm that guy, you're just doing self-justification, self-approval. You're boasting in something. Until you do that, you're going to hate others. You're going to despise yourself because you're not good enough because it's not about you, or it's, it is about you. It's not about Jesus. And so what, like, the rest of the Bible goes around saying things like, God will have compassion on us. He's going to tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast our sins in the depth of the sea. He doesn't need our help to do that. He does that. He casts our sins in the sea. Another verse, uh, Psalm 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so does God remove our transgressions from us. From the east to the west, God removes our transgressions from us. He does that. That's by mercy. As the Father shows compassion on His children, Psalm 103.13, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. Okay, so justification, that is, is grounded in God's mercy. And, and so you see that, that plot twist there. It's what we think it's going to be is how you look outside, what you've done, what you haven't done. But it's really about, am I looking to Jesus to save me or am I not? Am I looking to him or am I not? Only those who've met Jesus are going to go looking for Jesus, though. So it's more than just the initial, oh, I need to get saved here. The only way, only, only way you can have a, a lasting, abiding life with God where you are producing fruit and loving people is if you've, if you've had to seek out Jesus. Because once you've done that, you're going to keep seeking him out because he's wonderful. He meets you where you are. He's somebody who can look at you and see you in all your ugliness and, and shame and say, I'm with you. I'm not going anywhere. I want you. You can be vulnerable with him. Otherwise, you're going to try to fix you. And you can't fix you. You can't, you can't fix the shame you, you, you've, you've, you've earned um, by the things you've done. You can't, you can't even get the job of your dreams. You can't do that. You can't find somebody who's going to love you. You can't make that happen. You can't try to forgive somebody that's hurt you. You, can't, you don't have the power to do that. You need Jesus for that. You, all these things come from mercy. God, and if you are able to do these things, it's because God's had mercy on you. If you all do have great things, it's because God has mercy. It's not works that Jesus justifies you or the works that you've earned something, it's all God's mercy. And so if you look at yourself, uh, if, if you look at that, and you see that in yourself, that's profound, that's a gift, that's mercy. But if you look at yourself and say, well, I don't understand, I don't, I don't really get this, that's not me, then look at the tax collector, look at the Pharisee, look at Zacchaeus, look at, look at, your, look at, look at who you are and who they are, and ask, are you one that's looking for Jesus tonight? Have you seen a need for mercy? And, 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 and you say, say something like, you see, I'm just like the Pharisee. I trust in me. If you're, that, if you're that person, ask him to have mercy on you tonight and change you. And, and you, can, you can believe that God sent his son to save sinners, right? He wants to save sinners. He wants to, to exalt the humble and humble the exalted. Um, he wants to bring that reversal, bring the outsiders in, those who need mercy. He opens a door. He will change your life. 
And you'll have so much in Jesus that, like Zacchaeus, you're going to be you know, trying to give your, your um, money away. Uh, like Paul, you're going to be giving your life away to sail around the world to tell people about Jesus. You'll count all that you should trust in and bank on as loss that you might have Jesus. You'll no longer exalt self, but humble self. That's, humbling your, that's what humbling yourself is. It's counting all things as loss. All that I have is loss. And so what does that look like? Well, when I was thinking about what does this actually look like to, to embody this, I thought about, you know, how, how I pray. And a lot of times, you know, I pray and I'm like, okay, I need to pray for baby Zoe, who's doing better. Those of you who were here last week, that amazing story. If, you, if you're following that on Facebook, it's truly amazing. This girl was about to lose her fingers and toes last week. I digressed here, but like God's changed that and he's reversed that. Uh, and that's amazing. But when you think about praying, one thing to do is pray for things. But do you ever kind of, when you're praying, like wonder, how could you love me? How could you choose me? Uh, look at me. You know, first of all, I'm, I'm like blown away that God would, would, would love me. But the fact that he would just enter into our world without just blowing it up, you know, is amazing. Like walking around, seeing people like me and you and, and, and just how ambivalent we are to him and not just destroying this place, or not even just ambivalent to him, but like actively opposing him. Like think about like the, the, the time on earth to which Jesus entered into the world, was born of the Virgin Mary and suffered under Pontius Pilate, all that stuff. Like, like people were, were stripping men down, whipping them, and, and nailing them to crosses to be shamed and killed. And Jesus could have said, well, let's just start over, okay? Let's just wipe it out. But he didn't just say, let's start over. He actually like, went into that, entered into it, and did that. He was stripped, humiliated, and beaten, and died for our sins. That's who he is. That's amazing. That's Jesus. God is far more committed to me than I am to him. And until we can all start saying that, he's far more committed to you than you are to him. You've got to ask God to open your eyes to that. Um, let me just close with this. Um, I was, I was reading about a book. I didn't read a book this week, but I read about a book um, called The Invisible Gorilla, okay? And there's, a, there's, a, there's a, uh, two authors, uh, Christopher uh, Chabriz, or Chabriz and uh, Daniel Simons, The Invisible Gorilla. And so they're talking about an uh, experiment. Have anyone read this? Oh, good. It's an obscure reference that no one's ever heard of. Okay. A great way to close out the message of, of the gospel. Okay. Well, check this out. So there's a, uh, a, you know, a basketball game that they filmed, and, and all the players have a black team and a white team, okay? They have, they have people with black shirts on and people with white shirts on. And so they're, they're running an experiment where they, where they have the viewers of the game on, on the screen, like, tracking how many passes each team makes. So you hone in on the white shirts if you're looking at the white, and you hone in on the black shirts if you're looking at the black. Okay, and so it's, it's kind of a, it's, a, it's an exercise on like kind of multitasking, right? Like, can you focus? And so in the midst of this game that they filmed, all of a sudden in the middle of the tape, you see a woman in a gorilla suit run out on the court, okay? And she's like jumping around for like nine seconds in the, like clearly. Yes, that's exactly right. So, so clearly in the video, She's on there in a gorilla suit, right? Okay, but if you're watching for the passes, you don't see it, okay? Now, if, you're not, if you don't have a task, okay, if, you, if, you're like, if you're just watching the game for fun, you're clearly going to see gorilla suit lady go running by, okay? Everyone's going to see that, okay? But if you're watching the task, you don't. 
Well, 50% of people don't, okay? It's, it's, it's amazing that if you're just counting, counting passes, you can't see this clear gorilla person, okay? You can't see them. Half of the people watching the tape completely miss it because they're focusing on what they're doing, what the players are doing. They're focused on the task of counting. They can't see. They have no vision for Christ. Um, I, that's what I'm saying. I'm, I'm saying the invisible gorilla is Christ. <laughs> we can't see him because we're looking at the passes. We're looking at the works. Yes, see? Your vision is me performing. It's you performing. If that's your vision, you're going to miss Christ. You're going to exalt yourself. And you're going to trash everybody else. Be like, scoreboard. Okay. If you are focused on that, you're going to be self-righteous. If you've, but if you've seen your own self-righteousness and the ugliness of that, and they've kind of turned it on and said, look, look there's a gorilla there. Okay. Actually, the gorilla is your self-righteousness. That works better, doesn't it? Okay. If you've seen it, you're like, I've got to get out of this. I can't be in that. And you see God. And he won't be invisible to you any longer. Uh, if you've seen just the ugliness of, of how, the, how, that, how that is, how you're si- either sitting in class early judging everybody or coming late judging everybody in class, like, that's ugly, okay? That is not right. If we, you know, if we, if we can get over that hurdle of, of always focusing on works, what God might do, you know, the humble go looking for God, but they also go looking for others. We're going to fix everything if we can just get over that. Jesus doesn't, you know, Jesus, and you know, I think of one more thing here. Um, you know who Boo Radley is? Yes. Okay, to kill a mockingbird. Okay, okay, he's a shadowy figure, right? And he ends up saving the kids because they're getting beat up by uh, the town drunk, right? Tom Mule. Okay, one of them breaks their, breaks their arm. Well, Boo Radley, who we think doesn't, I mean, he's a shadowy guy. He comes in, saves them, and then, you know, like, People want to promote him at the end, but they're like, no, 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 we can't do that. Sheriff Tate says, you know, that would kill Boo, okay? Kill Boo because he's, Boo's in his house. That's where he wants to be. He wants to be away from the world. He wants to be away. He wants to be in his own little house, okay? Boo Radley was thought about as a ghost because he was so, so, so few times he's been out there in the world. But he's arguably the most potent character in the whole book and inspires other people, uh, uh, or inspires them because he saves them at the end, right? He's cool. Uh, so after the trial, you know, they're thinking about him, and, and Scout, you know, um, uh, Scout says, you know, I think I'm beginning to understand something. I think I'm beginning to understand why Boo Radley sh- stayed shut up in the house all the time. It's because he wants to stay in there. He hates the way the world is. People are mean to each other. People are beating each other up. Uh, he's seen the horrible things that the townspeople do to each other. He's choosing to stay out of the mess of humanity uh, and that doesn't seem like a strange choice at all to her, okay? It's sort of a downer, right? Okay, to see. He can't bear to be out there. And I'm going to say, only knowing a Savior who's gone fully to the cross for the wrath of my sin can set me free of my pride and to stand with other people who are different than me, who have different sins than I do, and stop straining for approval but try to re- help to seek their redemption. And so my, my final question is, what might happen at OU if God took a small band of, of people, disciples, and taught us that. You know, taught us this truth of, of we need him. And he's that good that he not only just jumps in and saves us, but he abides with us. He's not the Boo Radley. He's the abiding Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Um, how our eyes might be transformed from being eyes of pride to eyes of grace. Seeing others in need rather than fools, sinners. Uh, and so one person who's received that kind of mercy from God in Jesus can change the world. Okay, Paul did it. Zacchaeus did it. He gave all that money away. And that changes people. A community can change a world. A community can change a campus. And it's all because Jesus is not retreating, but he's on the move. And so my call is to go with him. Let's, let's bow and pray. We'll wrap it up.